Good morning, everybody. Would you pray with me? Uh, Our Father, we thank you uh, for this time this morning, for this gathering of your people together uh, to worship you, to glorify you, to, to remember and proclaim Jesus Christ, our Savior, in all that we're doing. I pray that you would be at work to to make him known to us. I pray that you'll be at work in this next few minutes as we dive into Ecclesiastes to say what you want to say to each one of us, to have each one of us hear what you want us to hear, and to move in our hearts to make us more and more like Jesus Christ so that we would make him known everywhere we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we are returning to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes Uh, this morning, and I just want to jump in straight away to where we left off last week, and we're going to pick up in Ecclesiastes 1, uh, verses 12 through 18. So if you want to join me, turn to Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. It'll also be on the screen. It says this, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge." And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I've had that last verse, this proverb from Ecclesiastes 1.18. I've had that taped to a, a pen holder on my desk for quite some time now. It says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And much wisdom is much vexation or frustration or difficulty, and increasing in our knowledge comes with sorrow. I keep that in front of me because in my experience, life under the sun, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes likes to say, is pretty full of vexation and sorrow. It often truly feels like living is, in fact, an unhappy business. As the first proverb in these first verses goes, in these few verses goes, uh, there really is much in this world that is crooked. Who could count all that is lacking in it? You know, if you know my story at all, my my family life growing up, it wasn't ideal. Uh, It probably still isn't for that matter, and it was and it is crooked and broken. And I've wondered, can I straighten that out? I've tried my hand at it, but often I've found more vexation, I've found more difficulty, I've found more sorrow. Can I count all that I've felt robbed of at times? And even if I could count all that I feel like I've lost out on, what would that gain me? Where would I gain? I mean, who on earth is compensating for what's lost? Or what if I held on to it? And what if I repaid all of that with some kind of revenge? Would that fill me up? Or would it just add to the deficit and remain and make me remain 
frustrated, vexed, sorrowful. Even in pastoring, honestly, with all the good that I experience in it, sometimes, you know, people you care about can bite pretty hard. Sometimes people leave. It can feel like a divorce. Whatever I've envisioned like years ago for ministry, I've seen all those dreams smashed. And while I think there's both some good in that and some difficulty, it certainly feels at some times like an unhappy business. And so if I could just be transparent with you and not scare you off also, that stuff hurts. Whether I wanted to or not, the stuff hurts. And the hurt and the frustration or the vexation and the sorrow, it can kind of compound on one another and things can get pretty ugly in my heart. And so I just keep this proverb from Ecclesiastes 118 on my desk in front of me because it's a reminder that vexation and sorrow, this frustration, it comes with life and it certainly comes with growing in wisdom. How can I grow in wisdom if I, if I were to turn a blind eye to the reality that we live in? But also to become more aware of the broken world as it is and how broken I am, that's a vexing thing. That's a sorrowful thing. But perhaps it's also the only way to truly know how great the gospel is. Like if I don't see myself in this world as it really is, how will I know how much we really need Jesus? So for me, this verse is an encouragement to face the sorrows, to face the frustrations, and to take them as they come with some grace, knowing that through them somehow lies something better. I'm sharing all that because I believe that for many of us, we are frustrated, we are vexed, we are sad, we are perhaps angry people. We know that Jesus said in John 16, 33, if, if in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But maybe we live somewhere in between, like trying our best to believe that God can give us a peace that passes understanding, but we're also constantly frustrated by the troubles and the tribulations and the crooked, broken things of this world. So either we find ourselves sort of like spinning our wheels, uh, trying to make it right, or maybe we just stick our heads in the sand. And so I think this morning's passage in Ecclesiastes has something for you. It has something for us. But to get to the good news, to grow in wisdom, we're going to have to follow the preacher in Ecclesiastes on his quest and face some of the frustrations, and face some of the sorrows with him. Now, the preacher essentially walks us through this quest to find lasting meaning in three things, in doing what makes him feel good, in attaining wisdom, and in his work. We're going to start with this quest to find lasting meaning in doing what makes him feel good, in doing what is pleasurable and self-indulging. And so I'm going to ask you, just let's read through this together. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11 goes through this first part of his quest. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this, was, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. 
I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept, from my, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward, reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, somehow keeping his wits about him, being aware of his quest to find meaning, this king, whether that's Solomon himself or some sort of caricature of him, he sets off to do all that his heart desires. He cheered his body with wine. He built houses. He built vineyards and gardens and parks and pools, uh, like not just backyard swimming pools, but pools with so much water that they could water the forest. The man was not building pools. He was building lakes. And then he bought slaves, and he had slaves born into his house, which insinuates that there was a lot of slavery for a long period of time to do this, right? And don't think that this condones slavery. It doesn't. It's a quest to self-indulge. It isn't a holy quest. It isn't good in the slightest. Our guide uses up anything and anybody to satiate his desires. He had huge herds and flocks. He had silver and gold and treasure beyond our imagination. He had huge swaths of property. He had singers to entertain and to comfort him. He had many concubines. I mean, this guy had it all, some would say, right? He did it all. He left nothing to the imagination. And what did he find? Ecclesiastes 10, 2, 10 through 11. I kept from my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's the paradox of hedonism. The more you seek pleasure, the less you find. With each experience, you find again that you aren't filled up. And the more you seek, the more you dread that perhaps you won't ever find anything to satiate, anything to satisfy, anything to fill you up. It's all vanity. It's all like a vapor. It's all like a breath. It's all fleeting. It's all striving after the wind. And so he's fed up with this pursuit and he moves on to the next. The preacher turns to wisdom and he asks this, which is better? Which gains the most, wisdom or folly? Let's read this, Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17. He said, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who, be, who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived 
that the same event happens to them all. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will be long, long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. We've already seen that, every, that even in attaining wisdom, it comes with vexation, it comes with sorrow, so it doesn't really fill you up and make you feel great forever to become wise. However, the preacher here does say that he finds that when compared to just sticking your head in the sand or turning a blind eye to reality and indulging the self, wisdom is better. How's that? Well, at least it sees what's real and it doesn't live in some fantasy. Like the frustration of the hedonist is found in the inability to ever uh, gain some permanent state of pleasure. But, but that's largely because it just stays in the dark, right? Refusing to recognize that there's nothing ultimately there. Self-indulgence doesn't avoid frustration or sorrow, really, at all. It just creates one more piece to it. Whereas the frustration found in the tathing wisdom avoids at least the frustration of the fool. Still, as the preacher finds in these verses, the reality is that both the wise and the fool die. This is really fun stuff, right? Which sends him into one last space. It's another train of thought, sort of, as he considers his own toil, his own striving, his own struggle. What is gained from his toil? What will come from it? Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity. If death comes for us all, if it comes for the wise, if it comes for the fool, what is all the toiling for? The one who is wise dies and maybe all he worked for ends up in the hands of a fool. Because of death, neither the wise person or the foolish person actually gains anything of permanence, nothing eternal. Neither has a leg up on the other one. We will all die. And when we die, nothing that we have gained here on earth will go with us. And I know that we know this. I know that that's familiar. But this is the halting reality that the preacher comes to. And then he kind of turns around and writes this last piece. 2, 224 through 26. There's nothing better for a person and that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's a pretty significant turn that he takes. It's one that should make us start asking some questions. What if the preacher was misguided or at least, or misguiding us at least on his quest from the get-go? Like I said last week, the preacher, uh, as this book calls him, that's a translation from this word koheleth, which is a little bit hard to translate. It means something like collector or convener or gatherer. So the preacher kind of works as, a, as his title because maybe he's gathering people to hear his teaching. But what if in his teaching he is purposely playing another role also? What if in all his collecting experiences and in his gathering of wisdom and in his building and making and seeking what he can gain, what if he is playing the part of a collector or a gatherer like the Koheleth himself speaks of in that last verse we just read, 2.26, to the sinner he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. If you'll remember back uh, at the beginning of this passage, Ecclesiastes 1.13, it was Koheleth that planted this idea that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And the preacher's quest that we've been invited in on leads us to go about the business of seeking something of gain. Like, what will self-indulgence give me? What will wisdom gain me? What does all my toil gain me? As if the, that's obviously the business that God has put us on. But it's not. And we've been set up. If you set this whole passage on top of the story of the serpent and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis, it kind of blows your mind. See, the serpent didn't start with a blatant lie when he spoke to them in the garden. He was more clever, clever than that. He merely got them to assume that God hadn't given them the most happy business. That there was something to gain that they didn't know about. The serpent got them asking the question about who they were and, and who they actually could be. About what God was keeping from them. And the serpent merely led the way on the quest to taste the forbidden fruit and see what was on the other side to be gained. Kind of sounds like the quest the preacher has invited us in on. Another thing that might take us back to the garden is, is our guide's activities and his quest through self-indulgence. There we see him. He's building all kinds of things, right? Growing gardens. Uh, he builds houses. He builds parks, etc. If you're like me, maybe you're even tracking with him just for a moment, even though you know you're not supposed to. You don't have to like amen that or anything, but if you just want to silently admit that to yourself, that's okay. You may have kind of wished that you could try that life out at least to some extent, right? Build a business empire. Build a big house. Maybe multiply houses. I mean, we got to have vacations, right? Cars, vineyards, money to do whatever you want to do. If you felt like that, like I did, I'm here to tell you that you got trapped. Right? You took the bait like Adam and Eve took the bait. Like I took the bait. The preacher goes about playing God, and he wants us to play God with him at least a little bit. But in this role, 
He's merely human. So rather than speaking things into existence and then giving them meaning, rather than providing for each thing that he made, like God did in the garden, he did what each of us would do if we were following the same pursuit of self-indulgence. He used all the created things up. He oppressed people for his own gain and for his own quest to find meaning beyond his humanness. Ultimately, he found that there was nothing there for him to gain anyways. Though he did say in Ecclesiastes 2.10, my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for all my toil. The work he did was enjoyable. That was really the only reward, even though he gained nothing fulfilling in the end. And actually, I think that's a clue that he dropped purposely for us to pick up. A clue to help us see that maybe the quest for gain is the wrong quest altogether. The question is, did God really give us this unhappy business of searching for meaning, of seeking to gain something, of striving for the eternal, of toiling? In some sense, you have to say that it's true. Like, Part of the curse after eating the forbidden fruit was that we would toil with the earth for our substance, for the fruit of the ground. But like Paul says in Romans 8, 20 through 21, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The curse, which is ordained by God, does subject all of creation to futility, to the weariness of a seemingly like never-ending cycle of death. But he ordained it in hope. And that hope is a hope that was assured in his own intent to send Jesus to free us from our bondage to corruption. And even in the curse, God promised a blessing. A son would be born who would crush the head of the serpent. And so, yes, in some sense, uh, God subjected us to the futility that we find in this life under the sun. But actually, it's what we're subjected to due to our rejection of the actual business that he gave us. Just like the serpent whispered some half-truths in the garden, so the preacher has hooked us in order to tease this lesson out, I believe. See, if we go back further, before the fall, before the curse, in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, this is the actual business that God gave us. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What business did God really give us? There's nothing there about seeking to gain anything. There's nothing there about securing something that will last forever. All that is there is that we were made to show the world what God is like. We were made in his image. All that we're supposed to be doing is going about being his image bearers, making him known in all the earth by just living day by day, being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, having dominion over the living creatures. And isn't this, in fact, where the preacher has led us back around to? 
He's quested through self-indulgence and through wisdom and through toil, looking for what can be truly gained, as if that was the business that God had put us up to. But then he picks up on his own clues and he writes the ship in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The business that we've been given, truly. The thing that actually is coming from the hand of God. It isn't the unhappy business of trying to gain eternity or to outdo death. It's to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in our toil. It's to be content with what we have been given for today rather than trying to store something up for tomorrow. It's recognizing that it is God who is our ultimate provider, our ultimate sustainer. I have two pen holders on my desk. I taped Ecclesiastes 118 to one of them, like I shared earlier, and on the one right next to it, I taped 1 Timothy 6, 6, and it says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And it took some time to see that these verses actually work really well together. But how many of us struggle to be content? How many of us spend our time wrestling perhaps with our own past, whether that's ways that we've been failed by others or maybe it's ways that we've failed God and ourselves and others in the past? How many of us spend our lives seeking to gain something more for tomorrow, spending all our time and all our energy planning for the future, investing in the future, maybe wishing for the future? I wonder how much of our life goes by unlived and unenjoyed because we spend our hours captive to the past or to the future, perhaps questioning the goodness of God. But what if we weren't made for the past or the future, but we were made for the present? What if we are meant to be free from our yesterdays and tomorrows, to live freely within uh, the eternal provision of God? As I've been studying and meditating In Ecclesiastes, this is key. This is where it leads me. This is where I think it's leading us. While God created us for eternity, we were created by God to live in the present. To live day by day, every day, forever. We were made to live day by day with our God, relying on him to provide and to sustain us as promised. We were made to go about today's business of eating and drinking and doing today's work in a way that images him, a way that makes him known. And we do that by living free from the worries of eternity so that we are able to enjoy what he has for us right now. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, I think he knows that this is easier said than done. So he takes us on this quest so we can look to see if we can gain anything under the sun. If we can make crooked things straight. If we can find peace and avoid sorrow. If we can somehow defeat death on our own. And on the quest, we find that those are actually jobs that we were not created to do. So we can't do them. God may have us work with them just as... He may have us tend his garden or care for his creation, but ultimately those are God jobs. 
And even in our inability, he provides and he completes his work. He always has and he always will. Even in the curse, he shows mercy and promises a Savior who will deliver us from corruption. And ultimately, it is Jesus who makes a way for us to live in eternity as we were created to live. And just as he promised to send a Savior, to save us from sin and death, he has also promised to come again. He has promised that though we gain nothing here under the sun and our bodies die, we will live forever with him. And if that's true, if we have an eternity of tomorrows to come with everything that we need to sustain us guaranteed for each and every last one of them, then we ought to be freed to be content with what we have been given for today and to find enjoyment in it. We see the broken things of this world and I believe we're called to even join in the work of redeeming it by making Jesus known in word and deed. But it's freeing to know that we're not just spinning our wheels without end. Jesus will finish the work. He will restore. He will mend. He will make all things new. And while we're certainly a part of it, it isn't up to us. So we can be content to be here with him today, to join him today, and to find what he gives us today to be sufficient and good. We're going to move into a time of response, and in a moment the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us, and I'm going to pray for us, and we'll respond by coming to take communion and and giving of tithes and offerings. As we do that, you can come down the the aisle and we'll take the bread and we'll dip it in the wine or the juice, which represents the body of Christ that was given for us. As you come, you can drop your tithes or offerings in the basket. If you don't do that here, if you do that electronically, it's just we just want to remind you to take a moment to remember God as our provider and to give that gift back to him in worship and as a reminder that he's sufficient, that he's going to provide each day. But before we get into that, before we actually move into that to do it, I just want you to consider what keeps you from being content today, from being fully present with him today. And I just want to invite you into prayer. I find that the Lord's Prayer leads us through this well and the request that the Lord would give us this day, our daily bread. Maybe you can pray that. Whatever words you use, I just want you to take a moment to confess your restlessness, maybe your sadness, maybe anger, your discontentment in the present. And ask him to lead you into the peace and contentment that you were created for. If you'd like to respond by praying with others, I'd I'd encourage that. Grab one or two people around you, pray over one another. If you want to pray by yourself, take a moment and pray. And I just ask that, um, or I just want you to pray that you'd be just helped to trust him so that you'd find that peace and that contentment that he gives. And then as we pray, when you feel ready, come and take the Lord's Supper. And let's proclaim the Lord Jesus. Let's remember and proclaim our Savior, that he's all we need, that he is our daily bread every day for eternity. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move into that time. Our Father, we thank you for, um, again, for this time together and for a a moment with our brothers and sisters in Christ to uh, remember Jesus and proclaim our Savior. Lord, I pray that as we come and we take this morning, even as we respond to your word, that you would move in each one of our hearts, that you would help us to 
uh, identify even the ways we live discontent? Are we sad? Are we angry? Are we frustrated? Annoyed? Where is it that we can't see that you've given us everything we need today, that you are with us, that you are good, and that you'll do that forever? Because Jesus has come, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again. And in that we know, as we follow him, we'll follow him even through death and into eternal life. And you have all we need forever and ever and ever. Free our hearts, Lord, to be here today and to glorify you today and to be who you made us to be today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.